Good morning, everyone. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for joining with us uh, as we, as we uh, launch into the summer. It's great to see uh, so many here. Harry, if you could flick my computer on for me, that would be wonderful. I, I, wonder, I wonder when you last received something through the letterbox uh, that really grabbed your attention. It really made you sit up and take notice. Um, maybe it was a hospital appointment that you've been waiting for ages for. Maybe it was uh, some correspondence from family and friends who live overseas and you spotted that airmail sticker and thought, yes, this is it. Or, 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 or conversely, maybe you spotted that brown envelope with the HMRC logo in the corner or the credit card bill and, and, and your heart, your whole chest tightened. Um, whether it's for good or for bad, when we receive a letter from someone significant, it matters. And the reality is that the envelope on the doormat evokes a response because of the authority of the person who sends it or the organization who sends it. So, so junk mail, takeaway menus, brochures, catalogs, we tend not to get too excited about those things. But when we know that the content of that envelope that we hold in our hands is important it's as if the, the paper becomes more valuable. It's as if we, we, we treat it as if it's fragile, that it becomes significant for us. And throughout the summer, we're going to be looking at some important letters that, that were sent to churches towards the end or towards the end of the first century. Now, that may not initially sound to us like that is going to be of life-changing significance, but what we need to do is realize that these letters were sent to the churches of Jesus Christ in what is now modern-day Western Turkey. And they are sent from Jesus to his church. Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, the head of the church, the one who has ultimate authority over everything, as we've been seeing recently through a series through Mark's gospel, he is the one who is sending these letters. And so these seven churches who receive these letters, they better sit up and take, take note because of who sends them. But more than that, and more than just these seven churches, we must equally sit up and take note. These letters have been preserved for us in God's eternal, unchanging, inspired word. And so not only were these letters written to specific churches of that time, they are also God's message, Jesus' message to us as his church in 2023. So as we launch into this series, my encouragement, if not challenge, is all right, we've we, we got to sit up and listen. These are Jesus' words to his church. They, they carry weight, more weight than we could know. And indeed, Jesus ends each of the letters with the phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we must be ready to hear, be ready to listen. And that's why we're calling this series, Can You Hear It? It's, it's not just the physical process of can you audibly take in the message that is being received, but the compulsion from Jesus here is, can you hear it to the extent that his words grab your heart, which transforms your lives for his kingdom and for his glory? And that's my prayer as we enter into this summer series. This isn't just a convenient way to split up seven Sundays during the summer. This is a wonderful way as we get to hear Jesus' words to his church. And my prayer is that we hear it. And by that I mean that hearing in the fullest sense that we allow the words of Christ to grab our hearts and therefore transform our lives as we seek to follow him in our day to day. 
And as Jonathan mentioned last week at our prayer service in the evening, we, we introduced this series by looking at Revelation chapter 1, where we're given the details of the sender. We're given this wonderful, glorious vision of Jesus, the resurrected and ascended Jesus in all his majesty and splendor. And we're given, as we work our way through the seven letters, we're given a reminder of that vision through each one, because each letter contains part of it, the, the description from chapter 1 as Jesus introduces himself. And so it helps us to keep that lofty view of the sender of these letters in each time. But, but that's not all that's common throughout the seven letters. There's, there seems to be a, a pattern or a rhythm in how Jesus speaks to each of the churches. It changes slightly for each one, yes. But as an overall picture, there are five steps that seem to take place when Jesus is sending these letters. Firstly, there's the intro. Jesus introduces himself, and that's where we see part of that description that he gives, or that we read of in chapter 1. Indeed, he starts each letter with, these are the words of him who, and and that's reminiscent of the Old Testament, what some of us may remember as, thus says the Lord. It, it, It carries authority. These are the words of him, and so then we get details of who the him is as Jesus introduces himself. So there's the intro. Secondly, then, Jesus tells the church what he knows about them, what he knows positively or negatively and or negatively in cases. So six out of the seven churches receive great words of commendation of things that they're doing well, how they're following Christ faithfully. And five out of the seven churches then receive some rebuke. And the point is clear. Jesus knows his church and he knows the good that they've achieved and the areas that they have also compromised. And he is quick to praise the good and he's ruthless about rooting out the bad because he deeply, deeply loves his church. It is his church. It is Christ's church. It is his body. It is the representative of him now left on the planet. And so he longs, Jesus longs for his church to be faithful and fruitful. He knows the church. And because of who he is and because of what he knows, he then gives a therefore. Jesus says, this is who I am. This is what I know. Therefore, and he gives them a point of action. And it's what they need to do to either get back on track with him or motivation to stay on track. There's a therefore. And that therefore is then given a purpose. It's a therefore because, point number four, Jesus gives the outcome then of what will happen if they heed his words or not. It's the result of what will happen if they listen to the therefore. And finally, then, there's the promise that he gives, this eternal reward to those who remain faithful. And your version may have to those who are victorious or to those who overcome or to those who conquer. The idea is to those who remain faithful, Jesus will do something. He will give something. There's, a, there's an unshakable promise that he gives that will be the outcome. If they remain faithful. And so there's a rhythm and a pattern. The intro, no, therefore, because, promise. And each one of the letters follows, loosely or not, follows that pattern. And this morning we're going to begin with the first of those letters, which is the church at Ephesus. And we read the letter to the church of Ephesus in the first seven verses of chapter two of Revelation. Uh, and as you're, I'd invite you to turn there. Please do turn uh, to that passage, either on a device or a Bible that you have with you. If you don't have a Bible with you and would like one, please take the, the red hardback one that you see around you um, and look at Revelation chapter 2. Uh, and as you're finding that, um, it's important that we realize that Ephesus is a church that we know quite a lot about throughout the New Testament. 
So we, we hear of its beginnings in Acts 18, 19, and 20, its early years. And then we also know of the, the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesian church. We know also more from what Paul tells Timothy, as Paul sends Timothy to help lead that church, and he then writes two letters to instruct him in that purpose. And so we know quite a bit about the Ephesian church, and I'd encourage you, I'll not take too much time over it now, but I'd encourage you to read those what we know of the church already, because it helps to, to frame or, or maybe even or enhance what then Christ says here. It helps us, because we then know the background, we can then see the, the power and the strength of what Christ is saying here. Because through what we know of the church in Ephesus, uh, from elsewhere in the New Testament, we can see that there's a couple of things that are really important for what Jesus will then say. Paul, time and time again, talks about the, the danger of false teaching raising its head in Ephesus. Um, he, he talks about it in his letter. He talks about it to the elders as he gives them a very emotional farewell in Acts chapter 20. As he's writing his letters to Timothy, there's this rallying cry to defend the faith, to stand and teach sound doctrine, to, to stand for truth. There's this real understanding that Ephesus as a city is a, is a difficult place to stand for truth because there are many other competing teachings. And not only that, there was also going to be danger coming from within the church seeking to distort the gospel. And that's important when we then see what Jesus has to say about this church. So, so we know lots about uh, Ephesus, but in the, let's fast forward a couple of decades from when Paul was engaged with that church, and now let's hear at the, end of, um, at the end of the first century what Jesus has to say to the church in Ephesus. Let's read these words from Revelation 2, uh, the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in, in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let me pray as we've heard God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, we, we pray that you would help us. Help us not just to read, not just to listen, but that we would deeply hear your words. And Father, that our hearts would be transformed in a way that glorifies you. So Lord, may the meditation of my mind and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, I pray. Amen. Let's use that five-step pattern uh, to work our way through this letter. And so beginning with the introduction. How does Jesus introduce himself here? Well, he, 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 uh, these are the words of him. And who is the him? Takes us back to verse 16 and verse 13 of chapter 1. Him, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is why it's important to look back and remember the description that we see in chapter 1 because it, it, it helps us understand what are the significance of that. 
Because the seven golden, or the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands, Jesus explains what that means at the very end of chapter one. So in verse 20 of chapter one, Jesus himself says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus knows that uh, Jesus gives us the definition of what that means, what these, this image means. Jesus is holding the seven angels of the churches in his hand. Uh, and whether these are ministers of the churches or, or leaders in the churches or messengers sent to the churches or actual angels themselves, we're not told the specifics, but the point is clear. Jesus holds them in his hand. He is greater than they. They are not the leaders of, of their church. It is his church and he holds them in his hands. And secondly, then, the, the reality that Jesus is walking among the lampstands is important because we realize that Jesus is among his church in his resurrected and ascended glory. He's, he's not somehow distant and removed. He hasn't just left his church to it. No, he is present with them. He is walking among them. He is active. He is close. He is personal. He is relational. And so this introduction from Jesus already gives us the insight that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand. These are authoritative words coming to the church. And they are coming from the one who walks among his church. His relational, the relational present, uh, the relational presence of the Lord himself with his people. So that's how he introduces himself. Secondly, then, what does Jesus know about the church? And we'll spend a bit of time here as we consider what Jesus knows. Firstly, there's some commendation, isn't there? As we see from verses 2 and 3 and again in verse 6, there, there are aspects of their life and witness that they are to be praised for. And these are good things to hear for the church there. Let me read those verses again. I know your deeds, Jesus says, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And again in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. This is a church who knows truth and can spot falsehood, therefore, a mile off. They don't tolerate any kind of teaching or, or apostle who would seek to distort the truth, claiming to bring a fresh revelation. No, they, they hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And that, that's a group that we don't know a lot about. We're told that we meet them again in the letter to Pergamum. But it, it seems like they're a group trying to draw Christians into different acts of sexual immorality. And the Ephesian church hate their teaching and hate what they're trying to do to God's people. These are, these are good things. This is a church who works hard for the name of Jesus. It's a church who perseveres under hardship. It's a church that is, that the, the, yeah, the ESV translates that perseverance as endured patiently. We get the idea. This church is under the cosh and they continue to seek to live faithfully. They are weathering hardships, seeking to uphold the name of Jesus. This is good. This is to be commended in the church. However, this is not all that Jesus knows about this church. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. That's a real blow, isn't it? The, the good works are good. The endurance is admirable. The, the upholding of truth is vital. But they've lost their heart along the way. 
Juan Sanchez, in, in his book on the seven letters to the churches, calls this the danger of loveless orthodoxy. Loveless orthodoxy. I find that helpful. Essentially, it's, it's when the good desire to know the right teaching, the right way to protect the right doctrines, those are all good, but they're done in the absence of love. And that's a recipe for disaster because that doesn't seem to be the picture of a healthy, thriving, faithful church that Christ picks, depicts throughout the New Testament. As, as Juan Sanchez explains, that the biblical model is not one of either truth or love. It, it's both and. In his words, throughout the New Testament, the plea to contend for the faith is matched by the command to love. We must never pit truth and love against each other. Truth is important, but it cannot be separated from love. Love is important, but it cannot be separated from truth. And we see this through the New Testament itself, don't we? When Paul is writing that wonderful chapter of love on love in 1 Corinthians 13, it, it begins those first three verses where Paul clearly states, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul's explaining that you can have spiritual fervor, but if it's without love, then it's, it misses the point. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing, Paul says. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. We can see the point. We cannot, we must not forsake or abandon love. Even in the pursuit of truth. Because it's not an either or. This is not a seesaw where if we grow in truth, we shrink in love. No, no, no. We, we grow in both. The Ephesian church are commended for their knowledge. They're commended for their desire for truth. They're commended for their zeal. So, so the problem is, is not their deeds. The problem is not the depth that they are seeking. The problem is their desire. The problem is not their deeds or their depth. It is their desire. They've lost their love. And what is this love? Is it a love for God or a love for people? Is it, is it a, a love for, for him or a love for serving others? Yes, both. John, in his letter, makes this clear as he is talking about love in, in 1 John 4. This is the kind of love that we are not to forsake. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God is love. To know God is to know love. And since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the love that is to characterize the people of, of Jesus Christ is a love for God and a love for others. Reminds us of the, the greatest commandment, doesn't it? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yet it seems that somewhere along the way and somewhere along the very admirable path that the Ephesians have taken of seeking to to do the right things, to believe the right things even, they've somehow let their love grow cold. And to reuse a thought that we shared during our Mark series, I wonder, is it possible that, that in all their good deeds and their hard work, they're actually attempting to live for God through religious observance rather than relational obedience? We saw Jesus in Mark 7 challenge the, the religious authorities of his day with that kind of attitude too. And I wonder if the Ephesian church stumbled into that. That in all of their doing for all of this religious activity, which is good, it's to be commended by Christ. But it's done out of a sense of, of empty, loveless duty rather than in response to the loving relationship that Jesus has welcomed them into. And because of his great love for us, that love has compelled them to live the life that he desires. And I wonder if any of this is ringing true for you or your experience. Do any of us find ourselves just going through the Christian motions? Doing the things that we think we should be doing rather than being driven by a heart's desire to know God. To, to, a compellingness that, that means we, we can't not read his word. We can't revel in what he teaches us. We can't delight in the love that he has for us. Has it become a sense of duty, a sense of rhythm, a sense of routine? Now, undoubtedly, we, we will all go through varying seasons in our life as we follow Jesus. But it seems the pattern here for the Ephesians is this has become the norm. That they have forsaken their first love. And if this is striking a chord with any of us this morning, the invitation from Jesus is, hear my words. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. You have forsaken your first love. The letter doesn't end there. Jesus moves on and gives us the therefore what must we do now? This is who Jesus is. This is what he knows. So now what must we do in response? And we get this, we get this therefore, at the start of verse 5. You have forsaken the love you have at first. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Jesus seems to give three steps here for the Ephesian believers if they, seek, if they desire to rekindle their love for him. Remember, repent, repeat. The ESV has, instead of consider there, translates remember. The phrase is remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And so it fits my R's nicely if I use remember. Remember, repent, repeat. See, remember how far you've fallen. Look back to the passionate love for Jesus that once captivated your heart. Remember from where you've fallen. Assess the, the condition of your heart before God now. Do you love him like you used to? Does your soul rejoice in him purely because of who he is? Do, do, has your heart grown cold to the joy of the gospel? Or does the gospel, the, the, the saving work of Jesus Christ, doesn't still enthrall you like it used to? Remember the love you have at first. 
And secondly, repent. And we often rightly, please hear me, rightly talk about repentance in terms of something we do when we come to faith initially, when we first respond to Christ's call to obedience. And absolutely, we turn from our sin and turn to him. Yes, that is a right way to use that term. But as we continue to walk with Jesus then, and perhaps we we struggle with sin, we struggle with wrong thinking, we struggle with, with wrongdoing, then we need to continually repent, turn from that wrongness, and turn full square into the loving embrace of Jesus Christ. And so if your heart is cold to the Lord, if you've forsaken your first love, even in the midst of very diligent service for him, if your heart is cold, then turn, repent. Turn from the wrong, the wrong thinking, the wrong motivation that's driving your very good service. Stop living in a way that, that, that we think that we ought to, to meet the expectations of others. This is what good Christians should do. So this is what I will do. Everyone expects me to serve in this way, so I will. Don't let that drive you. The service might still be good and honoring to the Lord, but let your heart be led by love as you serve. You see, as we seek to, as we seek to earn the favor, either from, from others or even from the Lord himself, as, as we, we misunderstand, we, we forget the goodness of grace that saves us, not our works, then we can be driven into seeking to earn, seeking to, to warrant God's favor upon us. No, we must remember, we must remember that it is the wonder of God's grace that saves us. It is God's forgiveness that gives us purpose and identity. That's who we are. We are saints in Christ. That's who we are. And then from that, we, we live and work and serve. You see, it's, it's not because of what we do that grants us access. It's the forgiveness that Jesus has already won in our place that grants us access to the Father. And so, if, we, if our love has grown cold, remember the love we had at first and repent from that wrong thinking, wrongdoing, and turn to his truth, the truth of his grace, the truth of his love, the truth of his forgiveness, the truth of his ident- your identity being rooted in him, not in what you do for him. Remember, repent, and then finally repeat. Do the things you did at first. Remember the love you had at first and how that compelled your actions. Do that again. See, it's important that Jesus doesn't command the Ephesians to stop all of their activity. He has commended their activity as good. What he's saying is get your heart right and then keep doing the things that you did at first. So keep serving, yes, absolutely. It's not a command to stop that unless it's necessary to reorientate your heart again. But serve in a 1 John 4 kind of way. Serve in a way that is overflowing from love that because God has so loved us, we love others and so we serve our Father and we serve his people. And so if you find your heart towards the Lord grown cold, if you know that you have forsaken your love for him maybe many months ago, maybe many years ago, remember, repent, and repeat. As we think about Jesus' message to the church here, I think it's a reminder for us of another reason why the New Testament imagery of of human marriage is such a helpful picture as we consider Christ's love for the church. Because these three things, remember, repent, and repeat, that would be good marriage advice. 
if there was a marriage that love that the emotion had grown cold. Yes, there might have been faithfulness and devotion continuing to be demonstrated, but maybe the love had grown cold in that marriage. Well, what's the best advice there? It's similar to this. Remember the love you had at first. Repeat, uh, repent of the things that have led you to allow your heart to grow cold and repeat the things you did at first. Start dating again. Make each other laugh. Prioritize time together. That's good marriage advice, but in this setting, for what we see is the message of Christ to his church. And for all of us, any of us who have forsaken our love for him, let's get back to the love we have at first. He hasn't changed He is still as worthy of our full-hearted devotion and love. And so let's remember, repeat, repent, and repeat. Fourthly then, and very quickly, as we come to finish, let's mention the last two sections, because now we reach the because. So this is who Jesus is. This is what he knows about the church. Therefore, this is what the church must do, because this is why It's important to church and indeed for us to ensure our hearts are turned back. The rest of verse 5 experiences for us. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. See, remember the lampstand is the church. So if the church doesn't repent of the abandonment of their love, Jesus will come and remove the lampstand from its place, remove the church from its place. The church in Ephesus will seek to exist. And as we said today, Ephesus is a city... Um, is, is an archaeological location. It's a world heritage site. Um, there, there is no active, thriving city there anymore, not to mention a, a, a church. And so it's, I don't think, that, however, I don't think that this message is just about physically closing the doors on a church building. I think what Jesus is showing here is that he will remove his presence from a church. He will take his lampstand away. This is dangerous for us because that might mean there's a group that still might meet. There's a group that still might do things together. There's a group that still might fervently seek to to do the right things. But in essence, they've become a group of like-minded people who share an interest. Because the church of Jesus Christ has Christ at its core. It is it is a, a, a group a group of believers bound by him, united in him, working together for him. It is only because Christ is here that makes us a church. We can gather here very well all the way through the rest of our days. But if Christ is not here, then what are we doing? If Christ is not in us, uniting us, working through us, compelling us to mission, then we are a group of people who gather, but we're no longer a church of Jesus Christ. And I think that's the warning that Christ is giving here. And so we must remember, repent, repeat, and therefore bring back that love that we had at first. And finally, then we have the promise. For those who are victorious, and like all the letters, it's a reminder and a reorientation to take our eyes off this life and focus on our heavenly future. To the one who is victorious, Jesus says in verse 7, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You see that? I will give the right. Jesus, the authoritative one, will grant us access. What he says will happen. 
This is a sure and certain promise. And it's a promise here, the language of the tree of life and the paradise of God. That's intentional language to to take our minds back to Eden. But also we can then have the benefit of looking forward to the end of Revelation. When we see the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the river running through with the tree of life on either side. This is a promise of our sure and certain future if we remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And this is good news for the Ephesian church who were living in that context where persecution was coming. They were facing it now at the end of the first century and it was only going to get worse. And so this is good to keep our eyes focused on the the heavenly future that is sure for us. But it is also good for us as we read this. This is a good promise that the Lord has given us because it not only helps our endurance, but it, it nurtures our love. As we see and and we should rightly gaze at the eternity that awaits us, that Christ has won for us. And as we look more deeply at the paradise that awaits, then it grows our love for him that he has granted us access there. He has made it possible for us to be there. And so our love and affection and devotion well up as we gaze more fully at the heavenly home that he has prepared for us. And so we have Jesus introducing himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven lampstands. He knows the church in Ephesus and he knows us here in Gilnerk. Therefore, if there are those among us who have let our love grow cold, his loving call to us, his loving rebuke of us is stop. Remember the love you had at first. Repent of the things we have done wrong. And of the way we have let our attitudes get so warped. And then repeat the things we did at first. So that the lampstand will continue here. Jesus' mission will continue from this place into this community. And we will know an eternal home. Where we can eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. And so after, after all that we've considered this morning. The question that we must ask is, is how is our heart toward the Lord? Has it grown cold? Have we forsaken our love? And if it has, for those of us who know and follow Jesus, if it has, then he has given us all that we need to come back to him, to restore the love that we had at first. To recognize he hasn't changed. He is still the God who has so loved us. And let that love compel us to love him in return and love others in response. And for those of us this morning who maybe don't know the love of Jesus for ourselves. Who who, who haven't committed to following him. Who haven't surrendered our lives to following him. Who haven't repented of our sin and turned to him as our savior. Then hear the loving call of Christ. He has done all that is needed for us to know forgiveness from sin because as we'll celebrate in a moment, he has paid the atoning sacrifice in our place, taking the penalty of sin, my sin and yours, so that we can know his righteousness and therefore forgiveness. And so perhaps for you this morning, the response is to come, to repent, to trust him and to live for him. Remember, repent, repeat. Let's love the Lord with all we have. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving word to us. We thank you, God, 
that you have given us and preserved for us these words that you sent to the churches around Asia Minor. But yet, God, they still speak because of your spirit and your eternal word. They still speak so powerfully and challengingly to us. Father, I thank you for your enduring, unending love. And Lord, I thank you that because of your love, you sent Jesus so that we could know forgiveness from sin, so that we could know relationship with you again, so that we could know life in all eternity with you. Father, we thank you and we praise you. And I pray, God, for those of us who who know that our hearts have grown cold. We've lost that sense of a, a, a Psalm 51 kind of joy in our salvation. Lord, would you restore that to us, we pray. As we see once again, your incredible unending love for us. Would you help us to know and help us to hear your words this morning that we would indeed consider how far we've fallen. We would repent and we would do the things that we did at first so that, Father, your mission continues from this place in our lives individually, wherever you place us throughout the week and then as we gather collectively here as your church. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that that even in the times when your word challenges and cuts to our cores, Father, you do so lovingly to call us to your truth. And so would you help us, I pray. It is in your name, Father, that we ask these things. And for your ultimate and unending glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.